On this episode of This Week in Linux, we got a lot of application releases to talk about, like Nextcloud, Firefox, Vivaldi, Kden Live, and more. We got an update from the for the MB proprietary news we covered last time. There's a fork now. The kernel team are discussing the potential removal of the 30x32 sub-architecture. There's some possibilities that Intel could be open sourcing the FSP, and we'll talk about what that can mean. Later in the show, we'll talk some security news related to an SQLite bug, new malware families discovered by ESET, Apple's T2 chip issues with Linux, and yet another security hole found in Google+. Then we'll round out the show with some Linux gaming news, including some great games on sale. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNUs. Before we get started, I just want to give you a reminder that the Linux is Everywhere shirt and merchandise is on sale right now for the holidays. You can use the, the coupon code LinuxMus for 20% off coupon. And just so you know that this is actually the, the, free sh- the standard shipping in order to get it by Christmas has already passed. So if you wanted to get it by Christmas, it would, it would be rush delivery. But if you don't really care about when you get it, then the, the sale is still going on for this week and next week as well. And uh, if you are interested, be sure to check it out by going to tuxdigital.com slash linuxeverywhere. Or if you're in Europe, by going to tuxdigital.com slash linuxeverywhereeu for shipping inside of Europe. Up first in the show this week is Nextcloud 15 was released. Nextcloud has a lot of cool stuff that's coming in, but first I want to talk about the uh, performance improvements that they had. And that is that the site is faster overall with uncached loads and cached loads. But the uncached has been massively improved from 15 seconds down to 5 seconds. The caching has been doubled in speed from 3 seconds to 1.5 seconds, so that's really good. Uh, but the actually like the best things that are coming are related to improvements to security, collaboration stuff, and social uh, functionality inside of the system. So Nextcloud Social adds the ability to use ActivityPub. And if you're not aware, ActivityPub is basically a protocol and a, fr- uh, a foundational structure that runs a lot of the open source social network sites. So like Diaspora, Mastodon, PeerTube, Friendica, and many more are using the ActivityPub as a function, as the like the function to do all the Fediverse stuff. So like the federated instances and things like that. So if you are using ActivityPub you can actually interact with one network to another. So, for example, with Mastodon, you can subscribe to PeerTube instances or PeerTube channels, so anytime someone posts on PeerTube, you also get updated as like a notification or a status update through Mastodon. So in this case, Nextcloud is adding the ability to utilize ActivityPub directly in the Nextcloud app, and that way you could, for example, post to Mastodon from Nextcloud and various other things like that. Uh, potentially, this could be massive because depending on how they implement this, it could be like very good for the networks as well as Nextcloud. So, for example, with the the networks, Diaspora is a very good example in the sense that it doesn't have any scheduling ability and it doesn't have any ability to automatically post from other things. There are some people who are doing like services that kind of do it, but not really. It doesn't really work that well. But overall, this would be great if they were to do that because if Nextcloud were to make it like it's a single hub that you could push out your your toot. It's, it's Mastodon calls it that, yes. And your to, your post on Diaspora and every places like that. It would be really cool because it'd be very efficient and just overall a better experience. Now another thing that they did was adding some improvements to the security in the sense that they have now made it possible for administrators to control and even enforce two-factor authentication on a global case or in a group by group by group case. So for example, if you're uh, a company and use Nextcloud to for your your infrastructure, you can actually force all of your employees that have access to your Nextcloud to use two-factor authentication before they can actually use it, which is really cool. And they've also added some one-time codes structure so that a, a consistent man could create codes for people and they could use it that one time and you have to worry about them losing the password or whatever because you can just reset the code and then when, you, when they need to use it, you can do that way. So it's giving a lot more security and authentication control. That's awesome. But what's really, really cool, and I'm so excited, and I was waiting for it for a very long time, and that is 
support for Collabora Online. Now, if you're not aware, Collabora Online is made by the Collabora team who work on LibreOffice. So essentially, it is LibreOffice in the form of like a Google Docs. So in how Google Docs where you can, everybody can work together on the same document at the same time in real time, Collabora Online does that as well through the LibreOffice structure project. Very awesome. They've also made it where you can do um, like document revision. So it's like a history structure. So if something changes, you can go back and see what the changes are. You can even have chat during the editing sessions as well as easier sharing and even commenting on the uh, on the document. So instead of like changing the document, you can make a comment like on the side in the, in a sidebar about a particular section of the document so you can have a conversation there. So that's very cool. They've also made some updates to the mobile applications and many more things. So if you want to check out NextCloud 15, I have a link in the show notes. Now, it is a slight little bit complicated right now to get an upgrading to use this version because they're still they're, it's still rolling out to various different like platforms and ver- various different distribution methods, but it should be pretty soon, pretty uh, available pretty soon. So uh, I'll have a link to the blog post on NextCloud's website uh, in the link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the release of Firefox 64. Firefox 64 has a lot of cool features, and I'm a big fan of Firefox. If you haven't uh, seen previous episodes about it, uh, I'm a very big fan. I use it as my daily driver uh, all the time, and for years, maybe actually like over a decade, I don't know. But every time there's a new release lately, there has been a lot of cool features being added, and this is no exception. Now, this is there's not these huge like features for everybody, like the container tabs, which was amazing for everybody, uh, but there are really good things for developers in this one as well as there are some cool things in general but first of all they've added a multi-tab selection feature where you can uh you know you can hold control no yeah you just hold control or command on mac but we don't care about them so you hit control hold control then you click on a tab and you can click on another tab and select those tabs which would make it possible to easily take multiple tabs and move them to a different window and or move them to like a uh, your bookmarks, like if you have your bookmark sidebar, you can open that, then select these tabs, and then drag them into the bookmark sidebar, and then bam, you got them all really quickly. That's very cool. So that's a nice feature. It's a nice uh, workflow feature I like. They also added an accessibility inspector, which um, if you're using um, like developer tools and things like that, it makes it easier to see, like to display the contrast ratios for text, and that's pretty good. Um, so it makes it easier for developers to see uh, how their website works for different uh, uh, contrast ratios and things. They've also done a lot of cool stuff for the CSS. Now, one of the things they did was interesting, and that is to remove their own custom proprietary uh, values. I mean, it's not proprietary because it's open source code, but it's called proprietary in this case because it's like your CSS uh, code specifically has like dash or tack moz tack than whatever the actual css selector is uh this way they're going to make it where they're doing webkit so it's like uh tack webkit tack selector um, this is actually pretty cool because it means that a lot of people who are already using the webkit approach for their, de- their designs will make it automatically work with firefox as well that's very nice so it makes it a lot more like standardizing the code which would be much better in a lot of ways for uh, developers as well as users because it'll be more like the transition from like from the code from uh, Chrome or uh, Safari or whatever to uh, Firefox would be a lot easier and a lot more seamless, which is very nice. They've also made it where you can customize the scroll bars, which is very cool because it used to be pretty much impossible to do that uh, without actually modifying the entire theme or the entire theme of the application. So very cool. And they've also added some multi-position stops inside of color gradients for CSS, which just means that if you want to, instead of having one, uh, like one starting and one ending gradient, you can have multiple gradient sections. So that's very nice. Uh, they've also uh, t- decided to re- uh, un- remove the trusting of TLS secure certificates issued by Semantic. Now they already announced that they were going to do this um, probably a couple months ago or so because Symantec uh, doesn't really know what they were doing and they essentially uh, sold off all of their stuff to another company. Uh, DigiCert, I think, is who bought, bought, took over 
but basically Symantec is known for being like a antivirus security company who completely butchered uh, SSL certificates and TLS certificates. So it's really good that it's now, you know, they're taking, it's getting a full push of getting rid of those certificates because, yeah, they were not very good. Anyway, moving on, uh, Firefox 64 uh, also has decided to uh, basically just improve like a a bunch of bug fixes and performance issues so that they've, they've improved it. Uh, I couldn't find the actual percentage structure, but they did say that it's like heavily improved the performance. So if you have, if you think that uh, Mozilla Firefox has been like sluggish for you, it might be a good option to try out 64. Um, so anyway, if you want to find out more, you can go to Firefox uh, 64 blog post with a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Vivaldi 2.2. It's been released. And Vivaldi 2.2 adds a lot of cool features, including a saved sessions or a tab sessions system, allowing you to save a group of tabs that you want to reopen later. They already had a tab system uh, section where you could like re like, bring back tabs, but the way that it was doing is more like in a hibernation mode, so you'd have to manually do it in some cases, or or like you couldn't like specify I only want this one section to come back and I don't want this other section. Uh, this allows you to do you know make more control over that. Another thing that they did was to add a pop-out video, which makes it so that you can watch uh, typically HTML5 videos. I think it might support others, but I'm, it's so far I can only find out talking about HTML5 videos. But allows you to put it in a floating pop-up window, so it's not really like a separate window. It's like a, a built-in to the main interface, allowing you to watch a video while you also do other things on other websites. So it's like a picture-in-picture mode kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a little interesting. There are other... Um, there's add-ons for Firefox and Chrome that can do that, uh, but this is interesting that they built it right into Vivaldi. So, another thing they did was set up that uh, access keys let you access important functionality of a web page with the keyboard shortcuts. So, for example, you can set up Wikipedia quick commands. So, when you're viewing an article, you can reveal a list of the access keys by doing a shortcut. But then the access keys could be like a way to interact with the site, such as edit this page or search Wikipedia and things like that. So you can essentially create your own custom shortcuts with various sections of the of a website, allowing you to kind of quickly manage various different things of the site. It's a pretty cool idea. Uh, I mean, Vivaldi has a lot of uh, really cool ideas. Uh, far as the like the function system because if you have i think it's f5 when you hit when you're in vivaldi you hit f5 and there's like a like a, a pop-up with various different things you can do inside of it and this is allowing you to kind of um, do stuff with that like building your own kind of thing the uh they also did some stuff to the the address toolbar they've um started doing something it's called like a, a long it's like a history navigation structure so if you long click on the back and the forward, you know, if you click back and forward, it'll just go back to, you know, back and forward, right? But if you long click on it, it will bring up a submenu. And then if you middle click an entry in that submenu, it will open that item in a new tab. So it's a lot like a, it's kind of like adding a new workflow approach to it. So that's pretty cool. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the latest version of Evaldi, the 2.2 release, you'll find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the KDE application stack for 18.12 has been released. There's been a lot of updates for a variety of different applications. Uh, we're going to talk about one specifically in the next topic, but before that, we're going to do it like as a whole roundup group. And first up, we'll talk about the up, up updates to various different um, things in Dolphin. So, for example, Dolphin no longer allows attempts to unmount the active home directory. That's yeah, unfor- that would be unfortunate. Uh, and, or the, in the disk where the active OS is installed. So if you're already running the system, then you wouldn't want to unmount that. So this is kind of an improvement to make sure that that doesn't happen. Also, uh, console has some interesting updates, including some emojis, and uh, as well as uh, you can now do things when, if you, uh, when a bell is triggered in an inactive tab, the tab icon will be highlighted to visually alert you of the activity. This is one of the things that is kind of annoying if you if you use uh, a terminal emulator a lot and you have multiple tabs running and you get a notification that well, something that you're doing in the in one of the tabs is complete, which is why the bell would activate. Uh, you wouldn't have any idea which one it is in some terminal emulators, and console was one of those. So this 
a highlight of the of the ta- of the tab that has been you know to alert you is very nice to see. Um, also, now that if you use your mouse, if like if you let's say for your, your example, your mouse has a forward and back button, it allows you to switch between the tabs now in console to well, on your mouse without having to use you know like click which one you want or use a keyboard. So if you have that, it might be nice to do that. They've also now done something which is very very cool, and it's something that should have happened a very long time ago. For every email client ever created, it is called a unified inbox. You can now have that in Kmail. So if you're not aware, Unified Inbox is essentially, let's say you have 10 email accounts and you have 10 10 emails um, scattered throughout, unread, scattered throughout your uh, various accounts. Maybe there's two here, three here, etc. What a Unified Inbox does is it allows you to look at every single one of those email accounts at once in a single inbox. And then you can you can you know, go into each account if you want to, but it makes it a lot more convenient and faster to check unread emails. So Kmail now has that, which is awesome. And there's also been a lot of improvements to uh, Kate and Gwynview and things like that. Uh, they've also made some improvements to LibreOffice and AppImage applications. So for example, LibreOffice documents will now um, show like icons much cleaner and things like that. And AppImage also has improvements for like thumbnails and things like So like if you're looking at an app image inside of Dolphin, you'll see the thumbnail for the app image and stuff like that, rather than just like an app image icon. Is there like an icon for the application itself? Things like that. So it's very cool, and if you want to check it out, you can find a link to the blog post on KDE's website uh, in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Caden Live 18.12 has a new release, and also they have some more uh, news about their refactorings, uh, all their uh, development that they're doing for that. Uh, unfortunately, they have decided to push back the release for the refactoring to the 1904 release of Caden Live, but the 18.12 release of Caden Live has a lot of uh, bug fixes and maintenance improvements, so it's a lot more uh, st- stable and also more efficient. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still just like iterative improvements to the previous version. Most of their development is going towards that refactoring uh, approach. But they did give us a lot of cool information about the new refactoring version that they're working on. One of the things that they're doing is that they have a, now a nightly build system so that you can try the latest features really quickly. Uh, among the highlights of the releases for the uh, refactoring are the adding of parallel processing feature for the render speed improvements. They've added hardware acceleration for pro- proxy clip creation. Uh, Blackmagic design deck link output has been pu- put into the uh, refactoring version, which would be the 1904 version. And they've also done some improvements for the speed effect. It was previously removed from the refactoring version and added back. So if you were using the beta, you would know, but typically uh, it wouldn't matter. Uh, but anyway, they've also made it some keyframe improvements as well as time cl- timeline clip keyframable GUI, which is very cool because it allows you a lot more power to manipulate things on the timeline. But one of the things that's really nice to see is that there's a big new design structure being done for the uh, overall look of Caden Live. So I'll have a link in the show notes both to the blog post as well as to the discussion about the, the design concepts. But they're talking about redesigning the layout and the visuals of Caden Live to be more efficient as far as space usage as well as uh, being able to easily identify various different things. So for example, an audio clip and a video clip are very similar to each other. Um, but if you were to uh, change the colors like they're suggesting, it would make it much more quickly obvious like wh- what it is. Because like with a video, you'll have a waveform on the video. So if you have a waveform on the video and an audio clip, they kind of look similar depending if you see the thumbnails or not. But like if you have a very long one in the middle, you might not see that. It, it kind of looks the same. But uh, this way... They're talking about doing it so that you have different colors for every different type of feature. So if you have a title clip, which is the text like overlaying, an image, a video, an audio file, um, a color image, things like that, or a color clip, essentially, and everything else would be especially specifically color-coded to make it a lot easier and quickly to navigate and how you use the timeline and stuff. So that's a very cool concept. I think that the audio shouldn't be red because that kind of indicates like a negative thing in a lot of ways, um, but, you know, 
I don't care really. It looks good, so I'm I'm happy for that. So I'm I'm glad that they're working on they're improving all these things and the the refactoring for the the rendering speed and the the uh, the hardware acceleration and all that stuff. Very very cool, and I can't wait for it. So hopefully uh, that it doesn't push back again. Eight nineteen oh four is the one that comes out with it. So uh, I look forward to it anyway. Uh, but great work to the Caden Live team, and thank you for making that application because I use it literally every episode I make uh, and actually every video I make on this channel. So thank you, and uh, I look forward to the next thing. And if you want to check out the show notes, uh, you can find a link for the Caden Live 18.12 release, uh, the details and change log and stuff, as well as the updates for the refactoring and the link to the new design discussion. So uh, link in the show notes. Last week in the show, we talked about the MB's media server becoming proprietary and how that was unfortunate and their reasoning for it was absurd and ridiculous and silly. So this is great news actually now because there has now been a fork of the MB media server and that's called Jellyfin. I couldn't find a reason why they chose to name it that, but they did. So moving on from that, they have forked the latest version of like 3.6 MB, you know the 3.5 I think actually uh, the MB server uh, so that these you know like you could still have the uh, latest version of MB and still have all the functionality of MB but not having to worry about whether it's going to go proprietary again or whatever uh, because they essentially we talked about it last week but MB decided that they can't make money for some reason with open source even though there are you know hundreds and maybe even thousands of companies I'm not you know I haven't really actually counted them but that do that all the time and also many different projects that have a, an open source approach but also at the same time have premium services that still may make money as well like it anyway MB's ridiculous but thank you for Jellyfin to fork it because they're now putting they're, they're actually said they're going to be a lot of work on uh, improving all the things they didn't like about it they're getting rid of the nagware stuff and uh, various different things, so it's very cool. They've also, so far, I think they've actually had a release, uh, like their first release already. I couldn't find it on their GitHub, but uh, but I'm pretty sure they have already done that. And they did say that they're having it available uh, already for Docker, Arch, and Debian packages, so very cool. And they've even made a migration guide, so if you want to go from MB to Jellyfin, you can just follow their guide to quickly switch away. So very nice. And uh, thanks for making the fork of a potentially good server that could have been good, but they ruined it, and now making it actually good. So, great. Anyway, you're going to find out more, and if you want to check out Jellyfin, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the potential removal of the x32 sub-architecture from the Linux kernel. Now, this is also to be clear, this is not about 32-bit architecture. This is about a sub-architecture so this was re related to running or using 32-bit pointers and arithmetic and stuff like that on top of a 64-bit mode. So the idea is to get the advantages of a 64-bit without the extra memory usage that goes along with it by using this 32-bit like layer type. So just to be clear, it's not 32-bit architecture. But they are actually talking about how they're not really sure how many people use it so or if it has any users at all. So they're doing this to kind of test to see you know, how many people use it and, you know, to find out if it's worth continuing to maintain. So on the mailing list, Andy says he's proposing it by saying that we make uh, config x86, x32 depend on broken, which is a like a classification for a release or two, and then remove all the code if no one complains. If anyone wants to add it or re-add it back, then they're welcome to do so, but they need to do it in a way that's maintainable. So... They want to see if it's if anybody actually cares, and if they don't, they'll get rid of it. So Linus said that he's not opposed to sunsetting it. So, uh, but he wants to make sure that there's you know to get the gauge the reactions to see if anybody uses it and get be bothered and complain about it. I just wanted to cover it because there might be some misinformation about people mis uh, misclassifying it as 32-bit, but rather it's a 32-bit structure sitting on top of 64-bit. So uh, I just want to make that clear. That's why I put it in the show. If you want to learn more about this particular thing, you can go to check out the link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is their potential to be, uh, actually kind of a likelihood, uh, based on the report from Pharonix, that Intel would be uh, open-sourcing their FSP, or their firmware support package. And what's this is really interesting because in, there was actually like a like a webinar conference type thing 
that Intel did doing presentations about Intel and uh, in this in that one of the presentations was uh, Raja I think I said his name right and he did a presentation talking about various different things about Intel talking about that like over 15,000 people work on software at Intel and that they've been overseeing uh, over 35 Linux distributions they didn't really list all of them but definitely the most notable of those distributions is the uh, clear Linux because it's been featured in a lot of performance benchmarks and things like that uh, they've also been doing stuff like on the mobile side, but not recently. Like Migo, I'm pretty sure Migo has been deprecated, but they used to work on Migo and a variety of other things. They didn't give a full list, but it's still, you know, 35 is a lot more than I thought they did. But any, so anyway, uh, they. But the cool thing about this is that they're suggesting that the um, firmware support package from Intel would be open sourced. Now this is. The FSP is for initializing the Intel silicon, which right now it's a binary blob, so it's used to initialize the hardware, and it's a proprietary binary blob. But it, what it does is that it allows you to initialize like the CPU, the memory controller, the chipset, and all kinds of other stuff. So making this open source could be pretty big news for things like Core Boot and Libreboot and things like that, because it, and also just in general. Because it allows the the system to be more, uh, you know, not dependent on the binary blob, and it also makes it more, uh, you know, learn more about documentation for the ver variety of ways to implement the uh, improvements and performance of it, as well as security to make sure that the things are, are are utilizing it can you know be improved and they can find bugs and things like that. So it's very very cool. It has a, a potential huge impact if they do it, and they did say that they're. One of he did say that they're working on doing that, but they don't really give any kind of like suggestion as to when. So uh, they, but they did kind of say that maybe in the beginning of 2019. So that's way more than I would have expected. I would have said to him, "Say yeah, we're working on it," and like you know, four years from now, you know, it might happen. But at this point, it might happen within the first quarter of the of the year. So that's pretty interesting. So this could be a very big thing. And also, more so than just uh, the functionality of it and the security of it, they've also said that there's kind of some customer demand for the FSP, the firmware support package, to be open sourced. So that's actually pretty cool because it means like if the customers, like the enterprise companies, are demanding to be open source, that means that they're pushing for, towards more open source, making other, making these big companies change their path because of it, and that's a good sign too. So if you'd like to learn more, you can read the Pharonix post about this, uh, which I have it linked in the show notes. So if you're interested in self-hosting, then Namecheap is having a really cool deal that's starting, well, actually next week, technically, because we're going to be releasing this episode on the 16th. Their sales will start on the 17th and will go throughout the week until the 21st. Now they're going to have one new sale every day and they're going to be really good deals. Like basically every time they have a big sale like this, they they drastically discount the the cost of all their pro their services and stuff. So for example, instead of having like 13 to 14 dollars for a domain, you could get it for sometimes as low as a dollar, even less occasionally. So like I, we don't really know exactly what the deals are going to happen, but I just want you to know that if you are interested in self-hosting or, you know, getting a, your own domain and things like that, this is something that you should ch check out because uh, I'm a big fan of Namecheap. I use a lot of their services. So I think that if you are interested in getting a new domain or getting some hosting or even private email, they do have some really good services, and they're going to be on discount soon. So I wanted to add this in here. And while this is technically not an ad because Namecheap's not paying me to talk about it, um, I did put in here that's, you know, sort of an ad, kind of, because it's an affiliate deal. So if you were to purchase anything from the link in the show notes and in the description, then the a percentage of that will go to the Tux Digital channel. Now, so it's not, they're not really, it's not a sponsorship or anything. They're not actually paying for this conversation. I just want to let you know that if you are interested in deals in the sense of like, um, domains and, and hosting and private email, for example, like that, then this would be a good option to check out. So uh, check out the Namecheap holiday sale, which is starting, well, technically tomorrow. Up next in the show is an unfortunate bug in SQLite that was found that would actually, uh, it's a vulnerability that could actually allow for a remote code execution. 
Uh, it was discovered by the Tencent Blade team, and this was they've actually named it Magellan. So uh, this is this is pretty wide-reaching, actually, because SQLite is, is uh, used a lot in a, a variety of different applications because it's, it's an easy way to set up a database without having to have like a full uh, database structures built into the system. So like you don't have to set up a web server and a database server and all this other stuff. You can use SQLite to provide that kind of functionality. So it's, it's very heavily used. Uh, in fact, the, one of the things that they mentioned specifically was that it actually affects Chromium based browsers. So Chrome, Chromium, Vivaldi, all these different browsers are affected by this situation because it's built as a bug inside of their, their API. And, um, Firefox actually isn't, there's reports that Firefox isn't affected, uh, due to it's not implementing this certain API that has the bug. So it's potential that Firefox is not affected, but Chromium and Chromium based browsers are affected, which means that the, the re the, the reaching of the potential vulnerability is pretty wide. However, all of the, uh, SQLite itself has been updated to fix the bug, as well as uh, Chrome and Chromium have been updated to fix the bug as well. So if you recently updated, you're probably fine and good to go. But just so you know, you should you should absolutely update. Um, what's interesting is that this bug was uh, disclosed by the Tencent team. I think I think that's how you say it. Uh, they would uh, they said that they will not disclose any of the details of the vulnerability at the time. They they've sent the information to the vendors and the, the developers and things like that to fix these vulnerability as soon as possible, but they don't want to like explain how it works yet. And they also said that they have created an exploit, but it's not public exploit. So they said that they ex successfully exploited the Google Home product with this vulnerability. So uh, it is definitely a potentially bad thing because of how many how wide that SQLite is. But because it's very new and because the exploit is not like explained yet, uh, there's there's probably not anyone in the wild that has been able been affected by it. Uh, but it does have potential that it could be. So if you do have, uh, if you are using anything that's like uh, uh, Google Home or anything like that, or you're using Chromium and stuff like that, you should definitely update. Well, actually, you should just update most of the time your software anyway, because typically that's what they're for is to fix bugs and to fix security holes and things like that. So anyway, if you want to learn more about this, um, which will be linked in the show notes. Up next in the show, we got some more security news. Actually, a little bit more after this, too. But the uh, next is the ESET team, the cybersecurity firm ESET, has found uh, 20 new malware families. Now, these are actually pretty interesting because of how they found them. But just to be clear, I'll tell you about what they are first. Uh, they operate in the very similar, like pretty much they all the same manner in a trojanized version of open SSH client. So what they did, what they would happen is like the attackers would compromise a system and then, you know, typically a server in this case for, you know, to, to utilize in this way. And then they would replace the legitimate open SSH client with a trojanized version of it, which is like, which is basically what all these, these malwares are doing. So what another thing is that out of the 21, 17 were found to create a backdoor mode, allowing the attacker to stealthily, stealthy, stealthily, I don't know, and persistent way to connect back to the compromised machine. What's really interesting in the way is the way they found it, because they found it accidentally, because they were actually analyzing an, a botnet called the Wendigo botnet, and they found this backdoor called the Ebury. Ebury, I think, and inside that they found an, an internal mechanism that would scan for other locally installed OpenSSH backdoors. So they found all of these backdoors by finding one backdoor that already existed that they were already testing. So that's pretty interesting. Then they also created the uh, dark side of the force. I don't know what that's supposed to be. I know it's for SSH, but I guess they meant to go force with the force, I don't know, however it, however they wanted to do that. So this is a 53-page report of that, so they do learn a lot more about it. But I wanted to talk about it because this will probably be in a lot of uh, news places and you know blog posts talking about it because it's like, you know, 21 new malware families found for Linux. Yeah, kind of. Like, it's true, but all at the same time, it's not really a big deal because unless a Linux can, uh, sysadmin or a user goes out of their way to misconfigure their system, 
like for convenience or something, there's very little likelihood that this would be anything because you have to first compromise the system before you can uh, deploy this kind of these back doors and stuff. So you'd first have to get into the system and then do it. So while it is definitely malware, it's not as bad as some people are trying to make it out to be. So I just want to put that out there. If you want to learn more about this and maybe read the 53-page report, uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is some Apple is annoying news, and that is that there's actually, clear up, to clear up something, there's been some rumors going around where the the report saying that the Apple II chip, the T2 chip, uh, blocks Linux from booting. And while that is technically not true, the end result is basically true. So the rumors are basically saying that there's it won't boot, but it can boot when you disable secure boot, and you you go into you go into the well not the BIOS but you go into the UEFI and disable the secure boot, then you could you could absolutely boot it through like a live USB and stuff like that. Uh, but unfortunately, that's where it ends. That's where the good news ends. So uh, the team at Linus Tech Tips actually have a Mac Mini review coming soon on their YouTube channel. And in that video, they actually addressed this particular topic and said that they, through their testing, they found out that while you can technically boot to Linux with a live USB and stuff like that, you can't see the internal storage once you're booted, and therefore you can't install the system at all. So while, yeah, you can boot it, but you, you can't install it, which would then effectively be the same thing. You can't use Linux on the Mac stuff, like with the T2 chip. So if you were interested in getting something that had the T2 chip in it uh, for some reason or another, uh, this is a kind of a deal breaker. Uh, the Windows actually has a ex- uh, specific exception that allows it to boot on the T2 chip. So they would have to do the same thing for Linux and various different distros and stuff. I'm not really sure how complicated it would be to have like how many if it was just like a Linux kernel check or something like that um, or have to be the specific secure boot key to get in or a signature I mean uh, but anyway I mean I think they're kind of overpriced who cares kind of hardware but some people like it I suppose so if you're interested in checking out more about this particular topic I'll have a link in the show notes to some more uh, blog posts as well uh, but mainly uh, unfortunately I can't really give you the link right now when this posts to the video that Linus does about it. However, I will post a link to the like a um, small clip of it where they talk about this, as well as when they do post the video, I'll link to that video in the show notes as well. So, uh, but to be clear before we move on, uh, Secure Boot is the name of a protocol that is in the UEFI or the uh, Unified Extendable Extensible Firmware Interface, which is for like the firmware of the computer, kind of like a BIOS. Um, not exactly BIOS because that's another one, uh, but you dis so disabling that does not make the system insecure. It's just called Secure Boot. It's not the secure part of it. It's just the name of it. So if if you are seeing um, like tutorials that say disable Secure Boot, it doesn't mean you're disabling any kind of security kind of thing. But uh, just wanted to clear that up too. So if you want to check out the video whenever it does release, you can find a link to that in the show notes when it happens. Up next in the show is some more security news. From Google Plus, there's a new security hole that was found, and this one is much worse than the last one. So previously, the first bug that we announced that that was going to kill Google Plus, essentially, that they decided to remove it or turn, well, kill the consumer side. Why would anybody want an enterprise version of Google Plus if they keep finding these massive bugs? Like, that's a weird way to give incentive to people for consumer. Anyway. So, 500,000 people were affected by the previous bug. This time, it's 52.5 million users that were that are potentially affected. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were absolutely affected or whatever. Which is just like this is the amount of people who could have been affected. And the bug is in the API, and in this this bug, it's uh, you can get information from like uh, certain developers who have access to certain parts of the API could get get access to your name, your profile URL, your photo, your birthday, your gender, relationship status and a small like a short biography that you like the short bio if you fill that out. 
So like not all of this stuff, but the name, birthday, that kind of thing could be, you know, used in other ways with some more information. It could be a negative thing. So while they say no third party compromised our systems and we have no evidence that the developers who inadvertently had access for six days were aware of it or misused it in any way. So they are saying that is you know they they don't have any evidence that it was that anything was bad but you, they don't really know but they did decide because it was bad enough apparently that they're going to shut down Google Plus APIs within the next 90 days so that also means they're going to increase the speed of when they're going to get rid of Google Plus consumer completely and instead of August 2019 like they originally planned now they're going to do it in April 2019 so apparently it was bad enough for them to do that, I guess. Or they're using it as an excuse to get rid of it quicker. I just thought it was interesting to be like the point of like, you remember that one time that was bad? It's a hundred times worse this time. <laughs> anyway, so if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the Google Post blog, uh, blog post about it in the show notes. Up next in the show, Discord has announced that their store is going to be competing with the revenue split the announcement that Epic Games announced. So Epic Games said that they're going to do an 88 to 12 88%, 12%. So 88% goes to the developers and 12 goes to them. Discord has now decided that they're going to do a 90-10 split for the revenue. So 90% will go to the developers and 10% will go to the uh, the platform. Now, I know you may be some people may be thinking, "Wait, Discord has a store?" And yes, yes they do. Now, I've never talked about the Discord store before on the show because, well, it doesn't support Linux right now. It's a Windows-only thing. However, there was a discussion um, on uh, Reddit where one of the team members of Discord stated that um, everything they've built for the store actually works great on macOS and Linux. So, And a lot of their developers use both platforms internally. So they wanted to, you know, first, you know, focus on Windows because they that's their biggest market then they would want it to branch out so they said that we're definitely bringing it to the, all the plot to okay they say we'll be we'll be bringing uh, definitely bring things to all platforms probably not all platforms but most uh, so it is like likely that they will be supporting Linux they haven't said really anytime soon or any actually any estimate whatsoever but it is nice to say that we do finally have um, a notification from them saying that they will do it. What's interesting is that Epic Games is just speculation. You know, we, we they said that they're going to support other platforms, but we don't really know what they're going to support. So it might might support it, might not. But that Discord did say that they're going to. And also for some people, yes, there's a Discord store. If you're interested in learning more, I'll have a link in the show notes for this announcement. Up next in the show is the new update for Ballistic Overkill. If you're not aware, a Ballistic Overkill is a game I'm a big fan of. I've been playing it for quite a while, and we often play it with uh, the other hosts of Destination Linux. Uh, specifically, Ryan is most of the time the one plays with me, but uh, we do also have like a community thing where people can join and play uh, Ballistic Overkill. We've taken over servers with like all Linux users and everything, uh, so it's a really cool game. And if you if you are interested in it, it's currently on sale. So you could get it for $6 US uh, if you are interested. But what I want to talk about is the newest update. It's called the Juggernaut mode. And this is a really fun and kind of ridiculous mode. Uh, so what happens is is that you start the game or match, and then there's a like a golden chainsaw that's somewhere in the, like the middle of the map. So everybody chases to get it. And essentially, once someone picks up that gun, they become the Juggernaut which is a special class that increases your health ridiculous. Like, by default, your health as a character is, in, is no more than, like, 300 uh, XP health. When you become the Juggernaut, you get 4,000 XP health, and you get this ridiculously massive gun. And the longer you are the Juggernaut, the more points you get, and the more kills you get, the more points you get, and things like that. So it's a really interesting... Uh, game mode because it's a very unique game mode. It seems and it's and I've actually played it yesterday and it was really really fun. Uh, I didn't get a chance to be the juggernaut that much because turns out you have to be pretty good at shooting games in order to be the juggernaut, uh, which I am not. 
not I'm not horrible, but I'm not very good either. So uh, I got it a couple times, and that's about it. But it was a really fun uh, game uh, game mode, and if they were to make it a little bit more well rounded, because uh, they could tweak it a little bit, it'd be even better. But overall, it's a great addition to the game, and I look forward to playing it again soon. And if you would like to uh, join uh, the uh, us in the games, you could actually uh, join us in the Destination Linux Discord server or the Tux Digital Discord server by going to tuxdigital.com slash discord or destinationlinux.org slash discord. And then you can you know hook up with us and we can play there and uh, you can try out the juggernaut mode for yourself. If you'd like to learn more about this and maybe potentially purchase the game, I'll have a link to the Humble Store for the game, which will have an affiliate link attached to it. So if you would like to purchase the game, if you use that link, uh, a little piece of that percentage will go to the Tux Digital channel. And uh, I also have a link to the Steam link to the Steam page if you want to buy it there too. But if you buy it from Humble, you will be able to redeem it on Steam. So either way. Uh, anyway, if you want to find out more, I'll have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show, uh, Steam has actually, or Valve has announced that the Steam link for the Raspberry Pi software is available now with official release. So we talked about, you know, just a couple episodes ago, actually it was, I think it was last week, where we talked about the very short beta that they were, that they were, they apparently have done. Cause we talked about, hey, it's on a beta. We don't know how long it's going to be. And then within a week, it's now officially released. So there you go. So if you want to, you can try out the Steam Link app for Raspberry Pi. For it supports the Raspberry Pi three and the three B plus. So if you have an older version, it wouldn't work for that. But for those versions, it will work fine. And it runs uh, running Raspbian Stretch. So you'll need Raspbian Stretch to be able to do it. Um, what's really interesting is that they made it really simple to install now. So if you want to do it, you just do sudo apt update, sudo apt install Steam Link, and that's it. So it's very cool. So if you're interested in checking it out, you should do so because one of the things I found out recently is that not only does it allow you to, to like stream your favorite your, your uh, favorite games from your computer to your uh, TV and stuff like that, it also makes it possible where you can spectate VR games. So when someone's playing a VR game, you can actually watch what they're doing on your screen via the Steam link with the Pi. So that's pretty cool. If you want to find a, uh, check out the link uh, in the show notes to get to the uh, announcement as well as the, I mean, the documentation how to install it is basically pretty simple, but I have a link to that anyway as well. So you can check out the show notes for more. And finally for this week, we have some sales going on for Linux Gaming from the Humble Store and from GOG, which I think doesn't stand for anything anymore, but it used to stand for good old games. Um, but anyway, these games are a lot of cool stuff that's on sale right now. So with the Humble Store, you can get Mad Max for 75% off, uh, Bastion for 75% off, Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor for 50% off, and... Limbo is 80% off. This War of Mine is 70%. There's lots of cool games. Like Mad Max is pretty cool. Um, Limbo is a very cool indie game. And This War of Mine is also a very cool indie game from like uh, the perspective of someone who's in a war but not battling in it. They're just like surviving through it. It's a pretty cool idea. Uh, so uh, that's all available on the Humble Store. Also on the Good Old Games or GOG. Uh, they have another store with uh, another sale for winter sale for like you can get The Witcher 2 for 85% off, Hollow Knight for 34% off, and Kerbal Space Program for 60% off. There's other a lot of other games available on both platform or both um, stores that have uh, support for Linux and are heavily discounted. So if you are interested in getting some more games, you should definitely check the links below for uh, you know these getting these sales now. Uh, just be, before we uh, end this topic, I wanted to be clear. The Humble Store link in the show notes is a link, uh, is an affiliate link. So a percentage of the uh, sales that you buy from that link in, for Humble Store will go to Tux Digital. However, there is no affiliate link for the GOG. So if you want to buy something from GOG, um, you know, that's just a regular link. So I just want to make that clear before, you know, I forget. If you're interested in finding out some more about the, what games you can buy uh, buy from these platforms, I'll have a link uh, in the show notes to um, both these uh, particular sales as well as the links to like the Linux uh, tuxdigital.com slash games on sale. If you go there, it'll give you direct links to the various different stores and automatically have the Linux 
games uh, selected as well as the games that are on discount. At t- like So if you go to the Humble store, so tuxdigital.com slash Humble Sale, if you go there, it will go directly to the games that are on sale right now for the um, for that's specifically for the Linux platform. So it basically just makes it a quick, easy access to get to these stores and already have it set up for Linux games in general. So again, if you want to check it out, I have a link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. And also remember the Linux must coupon code for 20% off. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Namecheap, and more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some good news to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And as a special note, the Destination Linux episode that is the latest, or actually not technically the latest right now, uh, well, yeah, that's 99.99, which is a, it's a, it's a kind of a jokey announcement you might want to check out, but the announcement, the announcement is for episode 100, which is coming out in, on Wednesday of this coming week. So you should definitely check that out because it is going to be worth watching. Uh, and also, just as a reminder, this show is live, usually, every Saturday. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.